This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. The last few years have truly been a roller coaster ride for travelers. Those like me in the business, certainly, but also for those for whom travel is one of life's greatest joys. In 2019, our team at Indigari sent thousands of travelers to 122 different countries. And then in 2020, most of those same travelers were confined to their homes and countries for longer than at any point in their lifetimes. I personally went from traveling 121 days in 2019 to sleeping in the same bed for six months straight, which was actually a first in more than 25 years. I started my career as a travel journalist even before I was married at age 27. So it was also the first time in 25 years that I actually lived full-time with my husband. Thankfully, we discovered that we cohabitate pretty well. In comparison, this past year could definitely be described as a full-throttle return to travel. 2019 had been a record-breaking year for global travel by all measures, judging by the number of airline routes, hotel revenue records, and number of international travelers, more than 1.8 billion. In 2022, in many places in Europe and parts of the U.S., travel didn't just reach 2019 levels, but surpassed them. At Indigari, every one of the last six months surpassed our levels of trips in 2019, and 2023 looks even stronger. But I'll be honest, a year ago, I wasn't so sure that travel would have the great rebound many had predicted. After all, remember, exactly a year ago, we were in the midst of the holiday Omicron surge, with COVID cases spiking in London and New York and spurring new lockdowns in Canada and Australia. But very few people actually canceled their holiday plans last year. Despite the need for COVID tests to cross many borders and to return to the U.S., Our company had some travelers in Costa Rica and St. Bart's who suddenly needed to extend their stays when they got positive results. But there was no panicked wave of cancellations. Similarly, in February, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and we all watched in horror as Kyiv was bombed, I wondered whether we would have anxious travelers calling to cancel or postpone European plans. After all, only a few years ago, I had seen isolated terrorist attacks in Europe inspire floods of cancellations and a surge of news stories on the safety of European travel. But despite the ongoing war and growing political tensions, by June, we were seeing the roaring return of travel, as most European cities and resort areas experienced the busiest summer and highest average hotel rates in history. And this was while the Chinese, the world's largest population of travelers, were still in lockdown, and Russian oligarchs, who formerly made the biggest spending splash in the Mediterranean, were sanctioned from the scene. The biggest problem for us as a travel company and community, and for the vast majority of our hospitality partners, was no longer fear or health entry and exit requirements, which the U.S. finally lifted in mid-June, but availability of planes, hotels, even of tour guides and hotel staff, and our own staff, to field the flood of incoming requests for trips. Because while the demand roared back, the infrastructure that delivers the travel experience had been devastated with long-term consequences. More than 40 airlines went bankrupt due to COVID, including big names and national carriers like Virgin Atlantic, Alitalia, and Colombia's Avianca, the world's second oldest airline. 
Those that survived had slashed many routes, lost staff, and retired planes, making it unlikely for airline capacity to reach 2019 levels before 2024. Hotels have faced similar struggles, resulting in higher prices for rooms and frustrations with availability and customer service. Flight cancellations and delays have surpassed pre-pandemic levels. Airline and airport staffing shortages led to 2022 being dubbed the year of lost luggage. According to USA Today, one of every six bags was mishandled this summer. And it wasn't just travelers who were frustrated. You may have seen recent footage of bag handlers, who've since been fired, in Melbourne, Australia, throwing and smashing passenger suitcases. Hotels have also faced major challenges with labor shortages, supply chain issues, and delayed renovations, all of which are leaving them struggling to provide the highest levels of service. Meanwhile, surging demand and inflation have caused substantial cost increases. According to research conducted by the Family Vacation Guide, the average room price skyrocketed more than 200% compared to 2019. Comparisons were made using three-star hotels with costs from June of 2019 to this year. Some examples were Honolulu, where average hotel room costs jumped 252% from $186 a night in 2019 to $654 in 2022. In New York City, the average in 2019 was $228, and this year it's $743. That's a 226% jump. At Indigari, where we book a lot of four- and five-star hotels internationally, we have found an average trip spend increase from around $20,000 in 2019 to nearly $30,000 in 2022. Even at higher prices, though, travel is an expenditure that people are prioritizing. The pandemic reminded us that we should never take anything for granted and that time and the freedom to explore are precious which is why we're seeing more people now deciding to take their once-in-a-lifetime trips or returning to the places that they love. According to recent consumer research published by the American Society of Travel Advisors, travel tops consumer wish lists over all other discretionary spending, with nearly 8 of 10 Americans. The study found that many Americans are not only prioritizing travel, but are planning and willing to spend more to make it happen. 40% of survey respondents said that nothing will stop them from taking a vacation, while one quarter of American travelers plan to take a dream vacation in the next six months. At Indigari, we've also seen more people game to travel to the ends of the earth, and I guess I am one of them. I just returned from taking 17 of our members to Antarctica for the first time, and I have to say that it is certainly the ultimate experience for true nature lovers. I've always believed that the power of visiting places of amazing natural beauty lies in part because the works of Mother Nature reveal a kind of magical artistry. I stand in awe and recognize just how small and powerless I am. What a visit to Antarctica does is magnify any experience that you have had in the presence of the Grand Canyon, the ancient redwood forests, or the cliffs of Big Sur, and blow it up exponentially. Because when you arrive to the seventh continent, the magnitude of the awe you feel in the presence of what Mother Nature can render is magnified a millionfold. Why? Because all around you, from the sky, be it the brightest blue imaginable, clear of any pollution or dust, or angry and gray with threatening clouds, to the snowpack beneath your feet or the floating icebergs that seem to glow turquoise from within, Everything as far as you can see is made by Mother Nature. 
Her powers are writ large and completely free of man's touch. The Antarctic world is not just exceptionally beautiful, but it is also dangerous, and you are aware that this landscape is unforgiving. People can die in minutes in its sea. This is not a trip for the faint of heart. But on my trip, I realized that when people compare a visit to Antarctica to visiting space, what they mean by that is the only way that I might be made more humble in the face of the power and majesty of nature would possibly be by visiting another planet and looking back at Earth. Only then would you see even more clearly how tiny we really are. But just as we are seeing unprecedented demand for true expeditions, People are also craving to return to what they know and love, and sometimes discovering more. They are traveling all over Europe, to France and Italy, which have seen record numbers of Americans, but also to Slovenia, Malta, and Ibiza. On my trips this spring to Malta and Slovenia, it was incredible to discover ancient European cities like Ljubljana and Valletta, the oldest planned city in Europe, with so few tourists and such layers of fascinating history. One Slovenian host explained that her grandmother has lived in five countries without ever moving houses just because of border changes in the last century. Both regions also have incredible historical treasures as well as great natural beauty, and yet they felt like undiscovered secrets. Actually, Malta, it turns out, has been well known by filmmakers who've used it as a backdrop for epics from The Godfather and Gladiator to Game of Thrones. So I guess it's not really an unseen destination, but it still felt undiscovered. But getting back to trends, as we head into 2023, we've never had so many long-term reservations on our books. Many people who'd gotten used to grabbing last-minute rooms learned last summer that they need to plan ahead, so they are. And despite the challenges wrought by COVID, we continue to see great improvement and innovation in the travel industry. Airlines and airports are adopting biometric technology to improve efficiency, like facial recognition at baggage check-in and security checkpoints, even at boarding gates. Luxury lounges are popping up in terminals around the world, and the U.S. Department of Transportation is working to hold airlines accountable for delays and cancellations. A new dashboard on its website shows consumers the benefits airlines have committed to providing travelers when their flights are interrupted. The Biden administration is aiming to create more transparency in airline and hotel pricing by making them break down the quote-unquote add-on fees. And hotels are experimenting with ways to use technology to enhance hospitality by connecting guests with proper service providers more quickly, as well as enhancing everything from their wellness offerings and kid-friendly activities to craft cocktails. During the pandemic, I wrote a lot about the dangers of under-tourism and what a vital role travelers play in protecting environments and supporting local communities. The return to travel immediately lifted communities up that relied solely on tourism, allowing people to work again in countries like Kenya and Rwanda, and shone a light on issues like poaching that saw huge spikes during the pandemic. And across the board, we've seen a powerful commitment to cultural and environmental sustainability coming from consumers. According to the Booking.com 2022 Sustainable Travel Report, 81% of global travelers state that sustainable travel is important to them, and 35% report actively considering sustainability when deciding where to stay and how to get there. The industry is responding accordingly. At this year's G20 Summit, the United Nations World Tourism Agency stressed the importance of using tourism to achieve the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. 
To help accomplish this, national and regional governments are trying to involve local communities in tourism development efforts, including adding tourism taxes to combat overtourism and providing free public transportation. And aviation companies have committed to developing and investing in more sustainable fuel. Indigari is also committed. Our tagline is How You Travel Matters, and we've long focused on responsible travel and supporting cultural, community, and environmental sustainability. But this year, in addition to committing 1% of our total revenue to conservation efforts, we've offset 45% of the carbon footprint of our members' travels and are on track to being 100% carbon neutral in 2024. It's been said that travel is food for the soul. I believe it also makes us better, more expansive people. And the inverse, that staying in one spot shrinks the soul, seemed to be one of the many shared experiences of lockdown and why I think so many have such a craving to get back out in the world and to spend time with others. Our bounce back from the pandemic, the strengthening of travel infrastructure, and the commitment to sustainability show me that the human desire to explore will never go away, and that it can be a growing positive influence. The travel industry is an ever-evolving, inherently innovative sector, always looking for ways to improve. I began in Degare with a conviction that when done thoughtfully, Travel positively impacts us and the places we visit. The passion I've seen from people ready to go back out and explore and the tenacity I've seen from the industry in 2022 has reinvigorated my desire to connect travelers with the best of the industry. A friend recently gave me a beautiful drawing of a colorful imagined cityscape with the caption, in love with cities I've never been to and people I've never met. She gets me. And probably you do, too, if you're listening to this show. That spirit is one that my first guest of the new year, author Patricia Schultz, also shares. Patricia has written the best-selling series of books, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And during the pandemic, she was inspired to write her latest book, Why We Travel, in which she explores not just why we travel, but how to make your travels transformative. As she says, Travel is an investment in ourselves and makes us better people. When we get home, home is still the same, but we have changed. And that changes everything. So allow me to introduce this week's special Ask Melissa segment with a bit of background, because 2022 has also been a very special year for me since it marks 15 years since I founded Indigari. After working as the travel editor at Town & Country Magazine and launching the spinoff Town & Country Travel, I started the company with two of my colleagues in a two-bedroom Upper East Side walk-up apartment. At the beginning, we established a digital platform to connect passionate travelers. We quickly found that our wanderlust-minded readers not only wanted a place to share travel experiences, but they also wanted resources to help them design eye-opening journeys. So within a year, Indigari launched our first trip planning memberships. We've grown a lot since then. This year, with more than 2,500 trips booked to 92 countries and our staff spending nearly 900 days scouting, we've learned a thing or two about crafting unforgettable journeys just about everywhere. And I really do love answering people's travel questions. Coming up on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be answering your travel questions in the latest edition of Ask Melissa. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley will continue. Follow Melissa on Instagram at Indigari Founder. Now it's time for Ask Melissa on Passport to Everywhere. 
So this week, we have our Global Experience Director, Catherine Nathanson from Indigari, who spearheads our special experience programming and video production studio here today to ask me some of the questions you've submitted. So Catherine, let's get started. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me back on the show. A thrill to be with you. All right. Well, we have some questions that are about you to get us started. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into some of your preferences for where to go during the winter. So first, someone wrote in, in the winter, do you prefer to go to cold destinations or escape to the warmth? I would say I like to ski, so that would entice me to go to a cold destination. But in general, if I'm not going skiing, I would rather be warm in the winter. And so I tend to go further south and spend my time in warmer climates. Okay. And any favorite warmer climates? I have to follow up. Okay. Uh, Well, last year I went to Mexico City and San Miguel for the first time, which is near, um, warm, full of cultural activities. I love that. And I do like going to a beach, but not for a very long time. So, you know, usually for scouting purposes, I go to the Caribbean once or twice a year and go to a great beach. I love going to Africa in the winter um, and, you know, other parts of the Southern Hemisphere, South America, again, where it's warm and there's a lot of variety. So I've been lucky to spend time in places like Peru and Argentina and also go to Asia in places like Cambodia and Indonesia in the wintertime. Those are pretty great. And then domestically, Florida is a really easy flight from New York and reliably pretty warm. Southern California is much better than New York in the wintertime in terms of warm weather. So those tend to be places that I would say I go for quick warmth. And I guess it's part of my job to know your schedule. So I know you've got some warm weather trips quickly in the new year. Guatemala, right? I do. St. Bart's. The first big trip is to Sedona, Arizona, which we do every year as part of this wellness retreat that we do with Elizabeth Lesser. And it's an awesome way to start off the new year, going to the Red Rocks of Sedona, magical place, which I love. And we do kind of a wellness retreat there. And then I will be in St. Bart's doing some scouting because there's a lot of news coming out of there. There A lot of things that were rebuilt after the hurricane and some new hotels and restaurants. So I'm going to check that out. And then I will be in Mexico for a San Miguel Allende trip that we're doing with Architectural Digest, which is really visiting the design and art scene of San Miguel. And yes, Guatemala is going to be my first new country of the year. I'm really excited to go to Guatemala because I've been hearing about it for years from so many people. It's got a really rich cultural scene, wonderful traditional craft scene, great natural beauty, lots of history, wonderful ruins. So a mix of history and contemporary beauty and craftsmanship and meeting people and so and volcanoes. I'm super excited to go to Guatemala. And that's just the first couple of months. And you forgot about our trip, which is your first of the new year to Sedona, Arizona as well. Okay, you're right. It's a work. I mean, they're all work trips. But yes, okay, I forgot about that one, Catherine. I'm sorry. I am going with you in early January to Sedona to do the video on the reopening of Miyamo, the spa that I'm visiting later that month for my retreat. So yes, we're doing a behind the scenes live video. Second week of January. Second that week will of January. Air when? January 12th at 12 p.m. Eastern. Oh, yes. We're live we're in live. Sedona. I forgot that. So we're live in Sedona on January 12th. And then I'll be back to rest and relax with my retreat group at the end of January. Yes. You're right. 
And for anyone who wants to tune in, we'll add information on the event in our show notes. Okay. All right. Well, so now this is a good one. Somebody wrote in, where is your favorite place that you've celebrated the new year? Huh. Okay. I'm not a huge New Year's partier. I mean, I've been to the see the ball drop in Times Square as a native New Yorker. But I have to say probably my favorite New Year's was about four years ago. I was just with my two kids and my husband in Paris. And we weren't with a whole bunch of other friends. We went to a hotel to celebrate New Year's. And we had the best time with a bunch of other international travelers we'd never met before partying. It was just the four of us. And it was a ball. So I think that was probably the most recent great New Year's. Nice. Okay, and now we're going to turn our attention over to skiing because this is, of course, on many travelers' minds in the winter. So we have a message on what are your favorite ski destinations that are also family-friendly? I can give you the list of the ones that I have tried as someone I wanted my kids to learn how to ski, and my husband is not a big skier, so he was not willing to devote a lot of time. So we went to a lot of different places that were easy to get to, super kid-friendly, including Vail, Beaver Creek, Deer Valley, I would say, would be the top three destinations. They all had great ski programs, really easy to get to, reliable snow. As my kids got a little bit older, we went to some further afield places like Sun Valley, which was also super family-friendly, but not as easy to get to, so I wouldn't recommend with really little kids. And Taos, New Mexico is an amazing place to ski because it's the farthest south ski mountain, I think, in the U.S. And really small, kind of cool community, but hard to get to. So you've got to have kids that are willing to fly into Albuquerque and then go to Santa Fe and then get up to Taos. But really great. And then closer to home places, I grew up skiing in Stratton in Vermont and Stowe, which were really, really cold in the winter. But if you want your kids to learn how to ski anything, teach them how to ski on ice instead of powder. So that's where I I think I got some good skiing into. Oh, I hate the ice skiing. I actually just had my favorite ski experience I've ever personally had in the Italian Dolomites because it was the first time, honestly, I can say I skied real powder. And I have to say, Catherine, you beat me. That is something I've been so wanting to do for years. I've never skied in the Dolomites. I've hiked in them. And tell me how it was. It was absolutely incredible. I think a lot of people are intimidated by European skiing because they think that the mountains are much more steep than they might be in the U.S. But the Italian Dolomites, it's all connected by around 12 villages. You can really ski from village to village. So it honestly became a skiing but also a touring adventure for me because I got to ski through different towns, take my skis off. It was really kind of the next frontier of skiing. It, It surpassed the U.S. for me by a landslide, and really there was nothing like skiing on fresh snow and no ice. Well, and I know you're a foodie. Oh, yeah. And I have to say the problem with skiing in Europe, I think, is they care so much about amazing food, and it's right on the mountain. So if you've ever skied there, it's kind of hard to go back to American ski resorts where there are buffet lines. So uh, the caliber of food in European skiing, did it just blow you away? It really blew me away. I mean, I think it was my first time skiing without having to get in line with a tray to get my food and have some basic chili. This was the best schnitzel I'd ever had. Incredible pastas with truffle. It really, and I mean, the cheese and meat plates were absolutely incredible. Um, It was hard to actually continue to ski after lunch. That was the biggest problem. Yeah, I think that's why apres ski is a European expression because 
You know, when you're skiing in the U.S., if you're bussing a tray to get your hamburger, you might as well just get back on the slopes. You don't really need to sit there. Whereas if you're in Europe and you're like sitting in some beautiful cabin with amazing food and wine flowing, you don't really want to go anywhere after that meal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were wine tastings and wine cellars and the mountainside refugios and the dolomites. So it was pretty impossible to continue skiing. I think most people actually um, end the day taking the gondola down and skiing down for safety reasons. That is wise. Yes. Well, this actually leads us nicely into the next question, which is, what about European skiing for families? Are there other mountains? We just talked about the Dolomites, which I do think are also good for families. They have some intermediate beginner slopes that are really excellent. What are some other mountains you might recommend? Well, I was lucky when my father ended up marrying somebody who's German to start going to Austria skiing when I was a teenager. Like what you're describing in Cortina area, there's beautiful little villages that are all interconnected in Austria. Lech and Zurs and San Anton are these like picture-perfect fairy tale villages with little cabins and tiny hotels and, you know, wooden cabins that you go to by a horse-drawn sleigh for dinner at night and amazing, amazing skiing. So I think that's a great choice. Megève is also a really charming town in France and has great skiing. You know, again, I wouldn't recommend going to Europe with small children. I think once you've got, you know, capable skiers and, and kids who are good on long flights. But this year, with the strength of the dollar, it's, it's going to be one of the probably the best times in terms of price to ski in Europe than we've had in a really long time. And a lot of the infrastructure like ski passes are much cheaper in Europe. So with cheaper hotel prices, it might be the right time for people to consider giving it a go. And then this leads us to somebody wrote in asking for your specific property recommendations. Let's start with the U.S. and then we can move to some hotels in Europe that you think would be great for skiing with kids. I would say you want to pick a place that has a great kids program. So as I mentioned, I, when my kids were pretty little, we went to the Park Hyatt in Beaver Creek, had a great program. You went down in the elevator, there was a kids club and there was ski school right in the same building. Same thing in Deer Valley. They have places like the Montage is really nice. There's a wonderful small hotel called the Goldner Hirsch in Deer Valley. And there's great ski schools in both of those places. The ski school and kind of kids program in Deer Valley is fantastic, whether you're staying in a condo or a hotel. It's all run through the, through the mountain. And the same thing with Vail. So I think, you know, family-friendly resorts with a big infrastructure are great. And uh, that, again, in Europe, I'm not so familiar with that because that was not something I was, I was doing with little kids. But I think you, I would definitely check into what are the programs for uh, places. The other thing that people need to remember is in Europe, a lot of the ski resorts have sort of a Saturday to Saturday weekly booking program. They don't just book by the night. So, you know, it's, it's for a longer stay. And do you ever recommend renting a house or a condo or that's better for, you know, couples, friends traveling? No, absolutely. With families, I think if you can get a condo or some kind of a, an apartment in one of these places, it's fantastic. And again, like Vail and Deer Valley, a lot of the bigger ski resorts have great places where you can rent lots of different size apartments and you can cook not having to worry about getting out to restaurants and eating every single meal out. So yeah, I think, you know, with families, Running a condo or a villa is fantastic. And so this next person knows that you are a swear-by carry-on packer. So um, she is wondering, how do you pack all your winter gear when you're going on a ski trip? Are you doing luggage forwarding? Yes, Catherine, of course I'm doing luggage forwarding. I am not going to check a bag. 
The only thing worse than checking a bag than this summer would be checking a bag this winter when people are checking even more stuff and skis and things like that. So I am a big proponent of renting skis and renting boots because every year they upgrade the technology and they get better equipment. So why are you taking that back and forth across the country or across the Atlantic? And in terms of clothing, ship ahead. You ha- you know, just do it way in advance with something like Luggage Forward or even the U.S. FedEx Ground. It's not that expensive to ship a duffel bag full of all of your bulky parkas and mittens and ski stuff. Just make sure that you send it ahead far enough that it's definitely going to be there when you arrive. And even if you're renting a condo, the condo will be able to collect it or the condo will have a receiving place. And you just check that it's there before you leave. So you don't arrive in your overcoat and have not like one parka or one pair of ski pants. So definitely I'm a shipper. Okay. And to close out our skiing questions, uh, this person messaged in, what destinations do you recommend for a group of skiers at all levels and for some people who don't want to ski at all? Well, in that case, I think you want to pick a place where there's a lot more to do than just ski. So a place like Taos probably is not the right place. But a place like Aspen, where not only is there great shopping and great restaurants, but there's actually cultural things to do. There's wonderful art scene, museums, galleries. A place like that is great. Vail also is very big and has uh, you know, a lot more to do than just skiing. And there are a lot of places in Europe that were really resorts that were built to accommodate lots of people that don't ski. So Samaritz and Courchevel. Almost all of the restaurants on the mountain you can even get to if you're not a skier, you can get to and from. Pick a place that has other things going on, not just a small ski town. Oh, one last one, Whistler in Canada, because again, it's a big town and they've got great things to do beyond skiing and a really wonderful food scene. Zermatt is supposed to be pretty good too, right? Zermatt is beautiful, but there isn't a lot to do other than ski there. You can ski from Zermatt right into Italy to Cervinia, which is kind of cool to have. In the old days when I did it, you had to have your passport to go from one side to the other. Now, because of the EU, you don't have to. But you are crossing borders, which is kind of a neat thing to do. But it's a small Mm -hmm. town. Well, you go from fondue to pasta, and that cannot go wrong for anyone. (laughs) Okay, so now we're going to turn our attention to warm weather, which is also on everyone's mind, I would say. So for our first question on warm weather destinations, someone wrote in, I know you recently gave a lot of advice on Caribbean travel in the Chris Blackwell episode. So separate of the Caribbean, for those who are U.S.-based, where are the best destinations if you're seeking sunshine and warmth during the winter months that are a bit more far-flung that you love? Well, I guess it depends on how far-flung you want to go. I mean, close by, that's not Caribbean. I'm a huge fan of Mexico. I think it's a country with such variety. I love the Pacific Coast. I love the area around Baja, California. There's a lot of different areas within Mexico. Culturally, Oaxaca, Cuernavaca, there's really interesting places. So it depends, again, too, do you want city or not, or beach? And then South America... And Central America, Costa Rica is fantastic for people who are interested in surfing and ecotourism, one of the best in the world. Belize is a wonderful country if you're interested in snorkeling and scuba diving and beautiful beaches. Um, There's some wonderful ruins in Belize and some great nature places to stay. Panama, I think it's a really easy. I was in Argentina on my way to Antarctica recently, and it's an overnight flight to arrive in Argentina. And it's really something that you can do from New York. You know, you get on the plane late at night, you 
go to sleep, you wake up, you're, there's almost no time change. It's only an hour difference. You can spend days in Buenos Aires or go into the wine country of Mendoza. It's beautiful in the winter. Love Mendoza. Love Uruguay, which has uh, also got beautiful beaches. Uh, and Chile, which has the Atacama Desert, which is one of the most spectacular places in nature I've ever been. And there's the city of Santiago and then south to Patagonia. So there's a lot in South America that's fantastic this time of year. And then similarly, Asia is open. A lot of places are open and, and really need the tourism. They don't have a lot of travelers still in places like Thailand and Indonesia, Cambodia, which are spectacular, really rich, interesting cultures um, with a lot of natural beauty and beaches. And, and now's the right time to go. And if you want to go really far, New Zealand and Australia uh, finally open again and amazing this time of year. So I think we're always going to be following destination questions with specific property questions. So this next person wrote in, what are some of your favorite properties to visit in Central and South America? In South America, I love the Vic properties, which are in Uruguay. There's three different ones in a town called Jose Ignacio. And there's a wonderful vineyard outside of Santiago. It's the Vic, V-I-K. And it's a family who have Uruguayan connections and started some really interesting small boutique hotels in a beautiful part of Uruguay, which I think are fantastic. And I love uh, the properties up in Atacama. There's a couple of there that are great. There's the Explora Lodges. There's Owasi. There's Tierra Atacama that are all wonderful small boutique hotels in, in Chile that are fantastic. Another one of my favorite properties is in Belize, and it's owned by Francis Ford Coppola called Turtle Inn. It actually can be paired with his lodge in Guatemala, which I have not yet been to, but he has one called La Lancha. And then there's another one called Blancano Lodge that he has in Belize that he was inspired to buy after he filmed Apocalypse Now because it reminded him somewhat of the jungles of Vietnam. And in that Blancano Lodge and Turtle Inn are a really great combination. And somebody wrote in about the best resorts for family getaways. Maybe some of those are the same of, to what you just mentioned, but are there any others you'd want to throw in? A really easy place is Mexico. And I have had great family experiences in Mexico at places that were more sort of traditional, like the Four Seasons Punta Mita or some of the properties on the Mayacoba area, which is a Riviera Maya near Cancun, like uh, Rosewood Mayacoba and Ascencia. I like both of those properties a lot. But I also love the Pacific coast. I mentioned earlier, there's a beautiful coastline on the Pacific, and there are some hotels. It's south of Punta Mita near Manzanillo. There's a region called Cairas, uh, another one called Cuixmala, which are more unusual small resort areas where you can rent villas. And then there's a new Four Seasons opening called Tamarindo near there. And actually, one of my favorite resorts in Central America, I wouldn't call it a resort, but property, is one called Hacienda San Antonio, which is in the mountains, the volcano region in the Colima area of Mexico. And it was a former coffee plantation that still run as a big organic farm. It's right underneath the volcano. It was built, I think, in the 19th century as a hacienda and restored, and every room is different. It's exquisitely beautiful, and you can go hiking and on organic farm tours, and a really cool combination for teenage kids would be to spend time there for a couple days and then drive down to um, either Queeksmala or Kyraeus and have some beach time. 
And that's like a, a, just a really special part of Mexico. Okay, well, you've taken us all over the world, and a lot of these are certainly not long weekend warm weather getaways. But can you break down for us a couple of locations that would work for more of a closer-to-home long weekend warm weather escape? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier, I, Florida is a super easy one. And there are parts, you know, the Florida Keys I love because they're much more rustic, and there's uh, a small island called Little Palm Island in the Florida Keys that is a private island resort uh, that feels like you're much further away than just off the coast of Florida, which I love. If you want more of a scene, there's obviously, I think Miami's got a great art and food scene. So that's a good long weekend choice. If you're looking for warm weather, the Caribbean and Mexico from the East Coast are super easy. If from the West Coast, Baja, California, Mexico is fantastic. Uh, Hawaii is still really far to go, even from the West Coast. So that's a little bit harder. But those would be the main places I would recommend for a winter long weekend that you want warmth. So now we have to do a little bit of a year in review because this is our final episode of 2022. So this uh, next listener wrote in, what travel trend shocked you the most in 2022? Wow, that's an interesting one. I mean, I have to say, like, in some ways... I was surprised that people came back with such a vengeance to travel. I I really thought when we had the COVID surge last year and then the war in Ukraine started that people were going to, you know, be fearful again. We'd been in such a moment of fear during the pandemic. And I have to say, I was astounded. There was just people, you couldn't get people to stay home. The rebound and the energy and the fact that they were so price resistant. I mean, there were a lot of hotels were really expensive this year. The prices, as you know, you heard, have gone up enormously all over. And that has not deterred people. And they are just determined to prioritize traveling. And that was a bit of a shock for me in a good way. You know, no matter what happens, I just feel like travel has been confirmed as something that people are not going to give up. And I'm very curious about your answer to this next one. But you traveled so much this year, one could even say too much. (laughs) Can you pick a favorite trip? Oh, well, that's hard. Um, Yeah, I did. I was making up for lost time. It's true. I haven't counted my days, but I don't think I've ever traveled as much as I did this year. It's definitely over 200. I've got to go to amazing places. Antarctica, which I talked about earlier, is something that is a life-changing experience. It's hard to put into words how massive the scale of the place is and the difference it is from anything else we've ever been to. So I would say that was probably the most memorable trip. On the other hand, you know, I got to go to Doha right before the World Cup, which is pretty exciting. There were so many wonderful places throughout the year that I got to spend time, you know, being in in Sicily and Malta in the spring was amazing. Being in Slovenia was amazing. Ugh, it's it's hard to pick, but Antarctica can't, you know, it's, it's just in a sort of category of its own. And Italy with Massimo Batura didn't make the oh, list gosh. there. Of course no, I that mean, one did. <laughs> yes. As I said, I was spoiled this year. There were a lot of really special moments. I mean, also, there's another record there, Catherine. I have never eaten as many courses. Someone on that trip, because it was a three or four day eating extravaganza in Modena, the capital of slow food in Italy, and Massimo's restaurants featured four meals over three days. I think we ate over 35 courses in three days. 
And wow. uh, that that's a record, but it was spectacular. Okay, well, you know how much I would enjoy that. So soft plug to take me on the next one, please. <laughs> well, we, we are going to do that again next fall. Well, I'm a huge Massimo Batura fan. He's incredible. And we had him on the show a couple weeks ago. We did. Okay, so now we looked back. We're going to go forward. So this next listener wrote in, when is the best time to start booking spring break trips? I guess that's the next big holiday after the holidays. Okay, uh, yesterday, today, tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people in the pandemic got used to being able to be very last minute because places were not full. And so it created some bad habits and a lot of people got burned this summer when they couldn't get in any place. And so I think, you know, as I said, that travel is back. People are making up for lost time. So we're already seeing a lot of hotels full way before we would have another time of the year. So start thinking about spring break when you're sitting at home over the holidays with your family. It's a great time to say, where do you guys want to go next? What should we be thinking about? And then see what you can make happen. And this next listener is wondering about what are Indigari's most popular locations for spring break trips? What are we seeing right now? So I think we're seeing a lot of people going back to some of the places we've been already talking about. People want to ski at spring break. So places like Deer Valley, Park City, Vail, going to Europe, places we've talked about in Europe, whether it's Zermatt or Lek or Cortina, also the Caribbean, Jamaica, the amazing Chris Blackwell property is there. Direct flights, obviously, to places like St. Martin, Anguilla, Antigua. Harbor Island is very popular in the Bahamas at spring break because the weather is great there and kids can walk around. I've talked about that in past shows. St. Bart's is already almost completely booked for March, so it's one of those things that it's super popular. But Mexico as well. And, and I think, again, there's no shoulder seasons anymore. We've never seen as many people go to Europe for Christmas holidays as this year. And I think that's because it was two booked this summer. They've missed it for a number of years. And so we're seeing people go over spring break to Venice or Vienna or Paris or London. Berlin is, uh, you know, is another great one. There's so much history. I did that one with my kids and it was amazing. Amsterdam even. And then Asia is opening up again. And so it's a great time to think about going to Japan. A lot of things are already booked for cherry blossom season, but March is a little bit before that. Thailand and Cambodia, all those places I mentioned in Asia before would be amazing. And India. I mean, India is great in March. Egypt, Morocco. So depends on how far you want to go. And then in the U.S., places like Charleston are beautiful in March. Places like Southern California doing a road trip from you know San Francisco to L.A. or some of the national parks in the south would be fantastic. So you already listed some of these destinations, but this next listener is wondering, are there places we can get in more last minute for spring break? Yeah, so that's where, again, like just think like a little bit um, off the beaten path. Europe, you can still find availability in March because it's not their high season. You're going to be able to find availability in, in Asia because it's not high season. So I think a great spring break trip with kids could be combining some great American cities with history. You could start, you know, Philadelphia for a couple of days and then go down to D.C. There's such great history and museums there. And then if you wanted to add something else on, continue down to Nashville and New Orleans or Charleston. There's great combinations of American cities at spring break. 
And I have to take this opportunity to talk about some of our insider journeys for people who are looking for a February to April trip that is already planned for them. What are some of the trips that you're leading? Well, let's see. In February, I will be going to Guatemala and San Miguel. San Miguel's with the Architectural Digest. So that's all, you know, meeting designers going into people's houses, focusing on the arts and culture and design of that city. And then we are doing an amazing trip to Maastricht, which is the ultimate antiques and art fair in the world. It really is the preeminent art and antiques fair in the world in Maastricht in the Netherlands. And we're doing a trip again in partnership with Architectural Digest there where we have special access to go into the fair before it opens to the public and meet with dealers and curators. So that's a great one for design lovers. And then we're doing our fashion trips with Vogue again to Paris and Milan in March. And that's with Vogue editors and visiting fashion houses and meeting the designers and learning all about fashion history. You don't have to be a fashion person. You have to love history because it is such a social prism, the way we dress. I've always said this before. Just as food informs history and life, every single day we get dressed and the way people dress changes history and really is impacted by history. So we focus a lot on that on those trips and they're really amazing. And then assuming that the political climate is there is stable and it's safe, we'll be going to Tunisia. And then in April, Malta and Sicily, which are also sort of design-focused trips. So it's a lot. You have a lot going on. I hope you're not going to be gone 200-plus days next year. (laughs) (laughs) And then Morocco and the Camino. Yeah, you've missed a couple in that list. But how can you remember all of them? It's too much. Okay, so this next uh, listener wrote in wondering about summer. Is now the time to be booking summer trips to Europe? Are we already there? Yes, you were there yesterday. You were there in September. Again, we had all these people who didn't get to do what they wanted to do this summer who decided to plan ahead and have booked like a full year out. So yes, if you want to go to Europe, get on it. And this listener messaged in, I had so much trouble booking a holiday trip this year. Everything was booked up by the time I started searching. To make sure this doesn't happen again, when do you recommend I start planning my 2023 winter holiday trip? Is it yesterday, today, tomorrow? Actually, it's a little different because what ha- it depends on where you want to go. I mean, if you want to go to Europe, that's fine. You could, you could book that a little bit later in the spring and be smart. But if you want to go to a traditional resort, whether it's a ski resort or a Caribbean resort, the most popular places often give guests who were there who are going to repeat first option to book again. And that sometimes they give them for the first month or so of the year. So you might not be able to book a hotel, you know, a small hotel in a really desirable location right now because they're waiting to find out who's going to rebook. That they would know by March. So you should be able to find out if you want to get a room at one of the most popular places in Hawaii, for instance, you would need to start calling February, March and try and get your booking. They'll make you put down a deposit. And then the other interesting window for booking vacations at Christmas and in high demand places, and this is what I'm talking about, is there's a window 90 days before Christmas, so the end of August, beginning of September, where people have to pay the final deposits. And they either have to pay in full or the rooms are released again. So then there's the second wave where you can get rooms again. All of that depends on the places that are the most hard to get into. I am a real believer in just being a contrarian. I went to the Grand Canyon and Zion and Bryce 
at Christmas in 2020 because that's not when those places are popular. The weather was still amazing and you could get in last minute. You know, that's what a lot of the people who are going to Europe this year are doing. You know, they're going and it's not the high season. So I'm a big fan of doing that. And then you can be a little bit more last minute. And this next question we have is, what are some of the off the beaten path destinations that we should keep on our radar going into 2023? Well, I mentioned Guatemala. I mean, the places that I'm looking at, because I love off the beaten path destinations, I love getting places early. Guatemala and Tunisia, I've mentioned. I had our team scout both of those destinations. I've had our team scout Senegal in West Africa. I'm really excited about going there, which I'll probably do in the fall. And other off the beaten path places, Slovenia, I've talked about already on the show. I loved, loved this small country next to Italy. Great hiking and food and wonderful people. Oman, I think, is a really interesting country in the Middle East. Jordan is an off the beaten path, but it's a country that I love and I think offers so much to people. So those are some of the up and coming kind of places. I I really want to go to Sri Lanka. Again, watching the political climate there. But those are places that I think all offer a lot of history and culture and have not been over-touristed. Someone wrote in, my niece is an avid traveler and I'm desperate to find her a Christmas present. Do you have any recommendations? Melissa, you're an avid shopper. I'm sure you've got a couple up your sleeve for this one. I'm an avid traveler. Avid traveler and shopper. I am a discerning shopper. Okay. Okay. But let's be honest that usually an extra suitcase is purchased on your travels to bring home Yeah, but that's like part of travel curation. That's not shopping. (laughs) That is collecting experiences and bringing them home and talismans. It's a whole different thing. I don't shop so much when I'm at home. So I'm not an avid shopper. I'm an avid traveler who is a discerning shopper. Okay. Does everyone have that straight? (laughs) (laughs) So what I would suggest for someone who is an avid traveler, I mean, again, like you said, what's better than a Christmas present? Of travel. So I think it could be a gift certificate for an experience in the place the person lives, whether that's, you know, a facial at a really cool day spa or a gift certificate to a really cool restaurant that they want to go with a friend um, or a pass for a museum, like a membership to the Met. If you lived in New York, you can travel by just going to the Metropolitan Museum. So those would be some things. And if you want to do something further afield, you know, a subscription to a great travel magazine, a collection of great travel books, if you know that they have a certain area. I mean, you know how obsessed I am about reading about places before I go to them and how transportive those can be. But I think you could put together a really fun collection of great inspirational travel books. Or you can give, you know, a gift card for miles, you know, or credit towards airline miles or credit towards a hotel stay, something like that. That's what I would suggest. Do you have other ideas? You're looking um, a little skeptical. No, I was just racking my brain around what's on my wish list, and it's mostly clothes this year. Okay, well, so in the clothes department, like yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm obsessed with the travel uniform, as you know, wool or cashmere joggers and a big long sweater for the plane and a great pashmina. I love the Warren and White has those great like travel blankets for the plane which I love, and you know how I feel about packing cubes, Paravel packing cubes I really like. Monogrammed. Yes, or great toiletry kit. Those are the things that you have to have every single time you're traveling. I like the ones from Kuyana, and I like the ones from Paravel. I mean, you know, you don't want to buy someone else's shoes maybe, but like great, comfortable travel sneakers. I love Sabas. 
I also like, is it Veja? One of my sisters is obsessed like with- V-E-J-A. Yeah. Yeah. Those sneakers are great. Yeah. Those sneakers are really cool. And another one of my sisters who's really into sneakers is doing custom Converse sneakers for people for Christmas. Wow. Because, you know, if you're a big walker, you need really great shoes to well, walk around. So. Well, then this leads us to what is on Melissa Biggs Bradley's Christmas list. Unfortunately, this episode airs after- Christmas. So this is not going to help your family. But what is on your list? They don't want any help. (laughs) (laughs) They definitely don't want any ideas. I don't have anything on my Christmas list because... How's that possible? Because I get to go all over the place. I now have this crazy travel schedule that's like my dream for the next year. But so you must what do I need always be list? seeing things that you want because you're constantly on the road. I, I'm a real believer in like treat yourself and enable people to make their own dreams come true. That's why I'm a big believer in like giving someone a gift certificate or something that they can use to treat themselves. I mean, I don't over treat myself, but I think you can use I'm a pretty, massage. That would oh, be a nice gift. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, you're welcome. I would never say no to a massage. There we I think go. That'd be a great there we go. Let's, let's gift. end at the spa. Okay. And I'm going to end us with this question, which is, of course, a perfect end to the episode here. But where are you most excited to go in 2023? Okay. It's a little bit like asking someone to pick their favorite child, but in the same way that in 2022, I could say Antarctica stands out despite all the other amazing travel experiences I had because of just how epic and unique it was and really what an expedition it was. In 2023, the trip that I'm making with last week's guests, the Joubert's, to Zimbabwe as part of this translocation of animals in Zimbabwe, I'm really looking forward to. I feel like I'm taking part in history, and that's something that's dear to my heart. I I love being in Africa, I love conservation and wildlife projects. You know, I've planted trees and I've gone to animal orphanages, but I haven't really been involved in a major conservation effort in a hands-on way. And that's going to be very, very special, I think. So that will be absolutely incredible. Uh, well, thank you so much, Melissa. I can't wait to follow along. And I know our listeners feel the same watching your adventures in the next year. Thank you so much, Catherine. And I'm going to be watching yours because you keep sneaking in some pretty good trips yourself. Yes, I do. I, you know, I can't wait. I don't know what my choice is for 2023. Oh, travel. yeah. Okay. What do you think? Because you've got a big calendar. What are you going to yeah, do? Yeah. I don't know. I was just thinking about it. I'm really excited to go to Lebanon. That will be pretty incredible. Um, I've always wanted to visit Beirut, largely because of your stories there. What else? You're seeing the gorillas. I'm seeing the gorillas in February. That will be completely amazing um yeah i mean the list is long i'm i'm excited for the year ahead so am i and i'm super excited to compare and inspire each other's adventures absolutely and you know what we both need to do for at least one week before the end of the year what relax a little bit don't you think oh you mean stay put stay put i'm not very good at that yeah no no (laughs) we can try (laughs) we can try to relax i am gonna stay put i'm gonna stay in new york and explore my backyard which has been really fun the last couple weeks look at that well you know i'll be following those adventures too i'm sure you're gonna have many new shops and restaurants for me to check out i got them thank you for listening i've enjoyed taking you around the world with me for this first leg of passport to everywhere And I'm excited for next year to continue our journey together and to share amazing new discoveries and introduce you to some more fascinating people. As always, please call with your questions and leave a message at 646-535-2222.
1-800-273-7297. Or send us a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel. Or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. Thanks for listening and see you in 2023. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at, at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I N D A G A R E. Send us your questions about travel, passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646 535 7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere. everywhere.